Hello. Season 4 of Discography was completed in 2019, but due to circumstances beyond our control, as well as many, many, shall we say, life roadblocks for the host, that's me, Mark with a C, it was not feasible to release the initial edit at the time. As Discography is now a self-contained, fair-use production, a completely re-edited version of this season was finally completed in 2020, so please don't be thrown off by the various dates of recording that'll be thrown about in the episodes. This season was a long game, and it's a bit of a miracle that it was resuscitated at all. We intend to try to keep Discography going, and felt that the wait for this season was so excruciatingly long with moved and missed release dates, we wanted to give you what exists as soon as possible so we can move on to the next phase for Discography. And we thank you for your support, patience, and your understanding. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this show, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective, right? Discography can also be a really personal journey for me, your host, which you should know up front. And this season, we're jumping into the catalog of one of the most mysterious and malleable bands of all time, Black Sabbath. And this episode kicks off our coverage of Act Two. Yes, that's right, friends. Act Two. Now, how does this math work out? The average person down the street might tell you, hey, doesn't Sabbath's second wind kind of start when Ronnie James Dio shows up? Not quite. Not in my eyes. Not as I've kind of wiped my mind clean and relearned everything chronologically. It doesn't feel that way to me. But don't worry, I'm going to show my work. Speaking of work, hey, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Thank you so much for coming aboard with us. But I would like to stress, I think you're going to have a better time if you start this journey from the very beginning of the season. Come along with me for the whole ride. Black Sabbath released their seventh album, Technical Ecstasy, in September of 1976. It's a controversial platter for sure. Some love it, some hate it, some find it solid but don't reach for it very often. I myself have a pretty controversial opinion on it. I've already sort of let on about it, but I'm going to share the rest of it with you up front, and it's probably not exactly what you think it is. That opinion? Black Sabbath was a band featuring Ozzy Osbourne on vocals, Geezer Butler on bass guitar, Bill Ward on drums, and Tony Iommi on guitar. They made six albums together. The final one was called Sabotage. Meanwhile, there's an album known as Technical Ecstasy, and to me, it's the first record from a new project by Tony Iommi, which also happens to be attributed to the name of his old band, because from here on out, you cannot bank on anything with the Black Sabbath name besides one fact. Tony Iommi was the backbone, and if he doesn't deliver the goods, no one else even shows up to work. In fact, I wish from this point on I could just refer to this new project as Tony Iommi's Black Sabbath, but that's not what it says on the spine, so okay, smart move, Tony. Brand names do sell. Now, I know that's not exactly what's going on here, and then I'm probably about to step into a bear trap by saying this, because so many people feel that the second act of Sabbath begins with the appearance of Ronnie James Dio's vocals on the album Heaven and Hell, which is coming down the pike, but my explanation is simple. 
The band flew down to Miami to make their next record, but had planned to produce the albums themselves again, except for one major difference, and that's Tony was usually the one staying in the control room working on the album at all, and the other members mostly showed up when they were needed for something. Tony would spend long late hours experimenting with ideas with only one other musician named Jez Woodroff. Name doesn't ring a bell? Well, he was actually the keyboardist on Sabotage as well, and he'd even toured with the band, though he was positioned out of sight of the audience. Still not buying what I'm selling? Okay, I'll do you one better. Ozzy had tried to start a solo band right before this album. And afterwards. The dude wanted to call his band Blizzard of Oz, and would even wear their t-shirts on stage during Black Sabbath gigs. So this cat's got one foot out the door. It goes without saying that everyone was burnt out and strung out of their damn minds. They were at best self-managing. Don Arden, who was really more of a lawyer by trade, still urging the band to get that great new record out ASAP, refill the coffers because the litigation with Patrick Meehan really did not favor Black Sabbath. This band is in dire straits. They need to work. But hey, the kids would get a new album out of the whole deal, so again, why not? Trouble was that Don Arden had another client named Electric Light Orchestra, and they were absolutely exploding at the time, which left Tony without much of a higher-up to speak of for guidance. And then to compound that problem, well, Tony did want to get a new record out for the kids, but the trouble was that a lot of those kids were moving on to punk, and somehow the group was already being lumped in with the likes of Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple as dinosaurs. Tony felt it was important to keep up with trends, so he was going to have to simultaneously keep Black Sabbath going, modernize it, and do it all himself while keeping everybody else happy, and that's a tall order for anyone, let alone a guy suddenly finding himself in a pretty lonely working environment where there had once been kind of a gang mentality. As a result, I don't think that Technical Ecstasy is a bad record, nor do I think it's a great record. Instead, I think it sounds like the debut album by a solo artist who's getting by with a little help from his friends. Sometimes, I mean, even the Sonics on the original were just weird and something felt off. Of course, the strange sound quality of the record could be attributed to a mixing board that according to Geezer Butler was absolutely coated in cocaine after the Eagles had used it last, and he jokingly commented that they'd nearly screamed a pound off the internal parts. But anyways, if Technical Ecstasy is looked at as a debut, it makes way more sense as the beginning of what Sabbath was going to grow into, which seems to be whatever the hell Tony Iommi wants Sabbath to be. Heck, Tony himself even mentioned that Ozzy himself called this, quote, a Tony record in his own autobiography. And I'm good with that. And all of a sudden, when you look at it through that lens, any issues one might have with the record can be chalked up to growing pains because overall, it's solid, but it's just really, really different. So hopefully you can live with my interpretation as we talk about this much maligned record. Is it the best thing ever? No, but it's way, way, way more solid than its reputation. a bit of how the album opens with a nice little chugging rocker called Backstreet Kids, which, in my opinion, really deserved a place on the mid-70s airwaves. There's a few instantly noticeable differences here, though. First off, has Geezer's bass ever been this low in the mix? I wonder what's going on with that. 
And secondly, there's sort of a double-tracked effect on Ozzy's voice, but to me it sounds more like a split stereo signal that's probably just keeping one channel about a millisecond behind the other. But what it really serves to emphasize is that Ozzy's voice isn't completely hitting exactly what he's hoping for, or what they're hoping for. He seems to really be stretching to get back to the range that he wanted to inhabit, and of course, there's that bitchin' proggy keyboard break that precedes the guitar solo. that the guitar solos truthfully aren't as plentiful here as they have been in the past, but when they hit, they're no slouch, Tony hasn't lost a step, but it's around now that you'd probably notice that Technical Ecstasy isn't just a name that they randomly pulled out of the bag. This is the most prog rock record one could probably ever expect out of Black Sabbath, and when viewed through that lens, it starts to make way more sense again, especially when you consider how, say, a Yes record might be mixed. Take Tormato for instance, and then listen to Tony's slightly thinner guitar tone, and then you get that aha moment when a track like You Won't Change Me crashes in with that nightmarish organ tone, sounding like it was plucked right from Blood Rock's DOA and slapped through an early King Crimson filter. Street Kids does unimaginatively close with another abrupt cutoff, not dissimilar to the one found on Sabotage's Hole in the Sky, and both tracks could be considered to be lyrical odes to never changing at all, while, well, the music sounds completely different than Black Sabbath ever has. It's a bit of a mindfuck, but if you work with it and let it seep in, it's a really good mindfuck. Now, the tracks the average person on the street might have the highest chances of knowing from this platter are The Cowbell Heavy Rock and Roll Doctor and Dirty Women. The former is just kind of a simple and kind of lyrically dumb, but super fun rock song, almost like almost like Black Sabbath's answer to the rockin' pneumonia and the boogie-woogie flu, while the latter... Okay, look, the lyrics are a legitimately positive track in support of lady sex workers, but man, have you ever really poured through this track? I mean, it comes at the dead end of an already controversial album, so I'm not going to be surprised if you didn't notice that this tune is musically absolutely bonkers. I mean, look, it starts off as this sort of dark and lurching tune, and it seems like it's going to be pretty obvious, has this really arresting harmony-laden vocal hook, but then like three minutes in... goes into what has clearly been the dominating payoff riff that we've been building and hurtling towards. that I already think this is mostly pretty solid, so if I had to guess, 
I'd say that most of the ire from this record comes from two tracks here. One is called It's Alright, which, okay, look, if you've never heard this, you're just not going to believe me, but this was legitimately the single that the group released to radio to promote the album. aren't playing tricks on you, and I did not accidentally drop the needle on a Wings record, that's Bill Ward on vocals doing pretty much the first song he'd ever written, or at least one of them. I'm not totally sure how this ended up on the album, as again, the party line is that this was an all-Tony, all-the-time album, but somehow, here it is, you know? And then there's the straight-up gorgeous orchestral ode to a lost love, She's Gone. The endless of party awaiting for you It's certainly not what anyone expects from the group, especially at this point in time, but how is it? Again, not bad at all, and a neat exercise in subtlety for the gang, with Ozzy needing to add some nuance to his voice to handle the delicate subject matter, and hey, we already know that Tony Iommi can do gentle music whenever he'd like to, but frankly, this is a better song than it's given credit for most times, and as far as I'm concerned, it's every bit the equal of changes from Volume 4. The only difference is that... Okay, sorry to sound like a broken record here, but this is Tony's take on a ballad, whereas Changes was at least attempted with most of the band trying to pitch in. Though it's kind of nice when Geezer tosses some tasty bass into the second half of the song. I mean, we all know he's the shit, as well as the main lyricist in this period, but tonally, he is just sort of MIA on most of this record, and I'm not sure what's up with that, but it's an already strangely mixed album, as I've already mentioned, so I don't suppose that I can get too nitpicky about it, but... Hey, for those who just want to rock, my two major go-tos on this album will absolutely get you where you're going. Like, you know how you've always wanted a song about a track about a president running the USA while seeming to be transitioning from a man to a lady? Well, Black Sabbath has you covered in the absolutely essential All Moving Parts Stand Still. Just like the hero, for MVP on Technical Ecstasy? Well, you know it's going to be Gypsy, right? I mean, I already told you I'm a sucker for a great drum break, and Bill Ward absolutely knocks it out of the park here on the proggiest and most unpredictable track on this whole affair, which was an opinion shared by Jim Myers from Milk Carton Superstars. If you'll remember, we had a bit of an in-depth chat about Black Sabbath. Here's what he had to say about it. Um, you, you reminded me of Gypsy, um, when we were talking about those albums ahead of time. And, uh, I mentioned Gene Krupa earlier and, and how I, I really dig Gene Krupa and, you know, he's, he's ever present in a lot of, of rock and roll. I get that in, in that album. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in that track, Gypsy, the first minute or so that, that, that groove that he's playing, it's, it's as if it's like, um, you know, sing, sing, sing. Um, with a rock band. It's really, it's got that kind of groove to it.
keep in mind that this song predated the word gypsy being considered by many to be an inappropriate slur and try to remember that next time you got five minutes to take this whole journey of a song in. Of course, we should also talk about the artwork. After they got burnt pretty badly with the sabotage sleeve, Black Sabbath understandably didn't want to take any chances. Up until now, any album with the name Black Sabbath on the spine had been predominantly black in color. And this one? It was done by Hypnosis, who you might know from, well, nearly every iconic Pink Floyd record cover, and one by Blinker the Star. And it's supposed to depict two robots falling in love on an escalator, but it's also got a white border, and it doesn't look like the first six albums, it doesn't sound like the first six albums, and the creative powers had shifted mightily to Tony Iommi. In summation, this is the first record of Black Sabbath's second act, in my humble opinion. And while technical ecstasy can be a bit perplexing, and not exactly what you expect, it will get more rewarding with each consecutive listen. Oh, and one other thing. Longtime listeners of discography know that I'm a total vinyl hound, but in the case of this record, I have no idea what Rhino did with the mastering with the 2016 CD reissue, but it actually just sounds a bit tighter and more cohesive than my 1976 Warner Brothers vinyl does. I'm not sure what's going on with that, but fun thing to note, and I can't argue. Something that sounds better just sounds better. Technical Ecstasy wouldn't even eke past number 51 on the US Top 100 Billboard charts, though the ensuing tour still saw the group playing to packed houses. The sea change had already begun, but it starts with Technical Ecstasy. <laughs> Late 1978 saw the release of Black Sabbath's Never Say Die, which is most notable for being the last album made by the original lineup and based on how I choose to look at it, an experimental sophomore entry into Tony Iommi's Sabbath domination. And said domination should not be taken as an insult. He's clearly a driven and restless creative type, he's got to make his art and sometimes other people are just gonna slow him down and man I relate too much and I'm absolutely projecting right now. So that said, the record's alternately disparaged even by some of the band members. Or there's a bit of revisionism going on where I've seen people sort of coming around to it. I've always kind of dug it, and upon hearing it with fresh ears, I'm here to say that this record is one wild journey, but it's clearly not going to be for everyone. So bringing us up to speed, at this point in early 1978, Ozzy's been hired, fired, and quit himself more times than I can keep up with. Everyone is strung out beyond all recognition, and look, I'm no Ozzy apologist, as I think that the magic of the first six albums is born of the chemistry of the four souls working together, but let's face facts. On this record, Ozzy had just lost his father at a pretty young age, and he had every right to not know whether he was coming or going. Unfortunately, there were still fans to please, songs to record, and label demands to meet, and by most accounts, if he was present, he mostly slept. Only getting up long enough for a bit of whatever substance he fancied and eventually passing back out. That Ozzy even sounds halfway coherent on this record when he even shows up is no small miracle, especially considering that the band was producing this record all on their lonesome again. Now hardcore Sabbath fans already know this, but it's worth mentioning that Black Sabbath had actually already replaced Ozzy at this point with a cat named Dave Walker from Savoy Brown. He's got a deeper, bluesier tone to his voice, and I think I only got some ideas from that that'll come up later, but pretty much everyone was in agreement that despite some okay TV appearances, it just didn't totally fit, at least that time, and I'll be honest, I want to tell you a lot about this record, 
but anyone who was actually there for it was at their wits end, coked to the gills, and I'm not sure how much of any story you can really bank on. There is one recurring thread though. At some point, I've seen all four members individually say that they could see that this was the end of a road. Not necessarily the road, just a road. And for this reason, it's my belief that you can't really carry that knowledge around without some manner of mentally checking out. So on Never Say Die, I think, I think the most impressive thing about it is that it exists at all. So how is it, you ask? Well, if you've listened this far, you've probably already got your mind made up about it. But me, when I toss the record on, I'm never sad that I'm listening to it, but I mostly pull it off the shelf when I think to myself, oh, I haven't listened to Never Say Die for a while, huh? So, Abandoned Limbo, made for a record that exists, but also seems to hang in that same limbo, which is a pretty damn iconic feat, really, and makes this potentially the most honest Black Sabbath record since the debut. And this one would see the Sabs trying their hand at the singles market again, marketing the title track and Hard Road as radio-ready riffage that actually did fairly well in the UK, at least. Of course, the real backbone of why this album feels off is pretty simple. The band had some ideas and some finished songs. If Ozzy thought that Geezer's lyrics were written for that interim singer, he would insist that the words were changed post-haste, and sometimes he wouldn't sing the songs at all. A great example is Junior's Eyes, the track that the Dave Walker-led incarnation of Black Sabbath had played on television, and while Geezer wasn't dying to change his own work, a compromise was reached to rewrite the lyrics about the passing of Ozzy's father, and this culminates in an unexpectedly moving track. flirtation with keyboards and synthesizers was only gaining steam courtesy of Don Airy and the stunningly melodic Johnny Blade. My God, that groove. And then you got to ask yourself, like, what's the deal? Why is this record controversial? Okay, listen, the second half of the album is where the controversy really is. But this is where it comes in handy to remember what I've said from the get go. Black Sabbath, namely Tony Iommi, was capable of creating any type of music that they fancied. They just chose to be heavy more often than not. Nowhere is this better shown than the shockingly light air dance, a pan to a dancer who just can't do it anymore. And sure, it kicks off with some of those patented Iomi guitar minis, but then it just becomes, well, the absolute last thing you would expect from the band at this point. I'm always at odds with when people invariably get on their soapboxes about Never Say Die, again, is how relentlessly melodic it is. And that's not to say that it's poppy or really even commercial. Just as far as rising and falling melodic components, 
Never Say Die is certainly the most unpredictable Sabbath record I could have ever dreamed up for this lineup. After the devastatingly precise lyrics of how the system destroyed the youth from an early age in the song Over To You, that's where the real head-scratchers begin. It's followed by an oddball piece known as Breakout, and it's important not just because Ozzy walked in, saw the song being recorded, and then walked the hell right out the door because... <sighs> it accentuates my earlier point. The band could do anything. If they wanted to take on jazz, well they were gonna take on jazz. It's not Iron Man parts one through eight, but I can't be alone here. This record is really, really good. It's just unpredictable. And that's that, though. After Breakout, Ozzy's gone. The record closes with a cool rocker called Swing in the Chain with the lyrics and the vocals being handled by Bill Ward, and that's it. Ozzy is a ghost for this band. Oh sure, he stayed on for the ensuing 10th anniversary tour, but that's pretty much all she wrote for this incarnation. Good thing we're only in the sophomore slump of Act 2, huh? And I use finger quotes when I say sophomore slump, because I just don't see Never Say Die the same way everybody else does. Musically, I hear everyone doing their best to bring their A-game, trying new things, and going in wildly unprecedented directions. I would have loved to have seen what these four gentlemen could have led to if they could have just hung on for just one more album with all this experimental stuff, but that's just something we're going to have to daydream about forever, because the next time that Ozzy would musically cross paths with the band, things would be exceptionally different, but for the most part, Black Sabbath, as of now, is officially and visibly becoming the Tony Iommi band, and the world might have been better off for it. everybody gonna take a quick break from the narrative here just to talk about some links that matter thank you so much for joining us here on discography season four there's so many other things you could be doing with your time but you're hanging here with me while we go through the entire canon discography of black sabbath studio records i'm having a good time i hope you're having a really good time too if you want to know a little bit more about me mark is your destination up top there's a whole bunch of links they'll take you to my facebook my twitter etc there's also a link in case you want to support my creative endeavors at patreon.com slash markwithac. Do you want to hook up with discography on social media? Well, we do have a Facebook page, actually. Facebook.com slash discography on CPN. That's the best place to get news as we know it. Sometimes we know things way before we can actually say them, and sometimes we know them way after we've published something, but... We do our best, and you can watch us do our best at facebook.com slash discography on CPN. 
Now, discography boss Cat Blackard also runs this amazing podcast network called NerdyShow.com. In full disclosure, I used to run a podcast over there called The Real Congregation, but right now, over at NerdyShow.com, the main focus is a really cool RPG show called Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. Highly recommended. If you're this deep into our Black Sabbath season, there's no chance you're not going to have a really good time with Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. And while we're here with links that matter, I want to give a shout out to some of the research materials that I used here to to build this season. You should know up front, if you do some digging, you can figure out that I had to research this season during a really traumatic period of my life. Probably one of the last times you'd want to actually be researching Black Sabbath, but the trouble was I didn't know how traumatic and difficult it was actually going to get. With that said, learning lots of stuff about Black Sabbath, getting to experience this in order for the first time ever, I ran into some really great ways to just get my mind off the outside world in the form of a great book called Black Sabbath Song by Song by Steve Pilkington. You've already heard me talk about it, as well as Mick Wall's book, Symptom of the Universe. There's a really cool documentary on YouTube called Black Sabbath Metal Mythos. It's hosted by Razor Fist highly recommended, especially if you like discography. The whole Metal Mythos series and Music Mythos series, probably right up your alley. But hey, if you want discography with like way more adult language, oh, the Mythos series, that's your jam. Also, there's a great book called Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, The Battle for Black Sabbath by Gary Sharp Young, highly recommended. And if you don't want to touch anything physical, but you want to learn as much Black Sabbath information as you possibly can in one place, look no further than black-sabbath.com. Also, I want to say a big thank you to Jim Myers from Milk Carton Superstars for some of his insights and helping out if you want to check out more of their stuff, you can dive right into their music at MilkCartonSuperstars.com. I'm Mark with a C. This has been Links That Matter, and in just a moment, we're about to talk about heaven and hell. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. We're going to go ahead and move on to talking about the album Heaven and Hell, interestingly, where a lot of people see the change of the guard for Sabbath most times, but uh, not quite. I think this is where Act 2 of Sabbath kind of hits a stride. Released in April of 1980, Heaven and Hell is a number of things. It's the record that's the point where some dyed-in-the-wool fans completely jump off the Sabbath ship. It's also the record where a nearly equal amount of people jump on and hope that the ship can go even faster than ever before. And then there's the cross-section of folks right up the middle that keeps the debates raging about if this could truly even be considered Black Sabbath. Let's set the scene. The band actually did try to knock out one more record with Ozzy, but it, clearly it didn't work out. Ozzy's gone, and their manager, Don Arden... Well, he had a daughter named Sharon, and she had introduced the gang to a free agent vocalist from the band Rainbow named... Lo-fi drum roll, please. Ronnie James Dio. A good match because 
Well, I mean, it's obvious, right? Black Sabbath needed a singer, Dio needed a band, voila, right? Actually, no, it's not that simple. Here's something that's going to come up a lot, and I'm no closer to knowing which times this statement is true and which times it isn't. But let me say it anyways, just to join in with the redundancy. They didn't intend for this to be Black Sabbath at first. It just sort of worked out that way. Okay, so in this case, I kind of buy that party line. See, I know I've spent a lot of time talking about Ozzy's issues, but also some of the really great parts of what Ozzy does. But again, everyone in the Sabbath camp was a little screwed up. Bill Ward's alcoholism was apparently taking a far larger toll than him than anyone might have actually noticed at the time. Geezer was wrapped up in divorce proceedings that kept him on shaky ground. It seemed like Tony was the only constant. And when Dio first started digging in with Tony, he was singing and playing bass. Well, the bass playing role got handed off a number of times, first to Jeff Nichols, who would quickly switch to the role of keyboardist, then to a fill-in bassist offered up from Frank Zappa's band, because Zappa loved Sabbath, and I'm going to guess that it might have been Patrick O'Hearn that he tried out, but still no dice. Tony Iommi wanted someone to stick around. Again, it just worked out that by the time they were ready to roll the tape and press record, the people on the record happened to be the three remaining members of Black Sabbath, with Ronnie on vocals and Jeff Nichols on keyboards. Well, kind of. Here's where it gets hairy, and trust me, it's gonna stay hairy from here on out. There were far more interim bass players than I'd mentioned. One of them was Craig Gruber, also from Rainbow, and he claims that he played all the bass on this record. Tony Iommi claims that, yes, Craig did record some bass, but that Geezer did his own fresh takes, reportedly never having heard the original bass parts. I can buy that, because this is proving to be a pretty passive-aggressive group of people, but to all outward appearances, the impossible had happened. Black Sabbath had not only survived without Ozzy Osbourne, they showed up with the sole intention of kicking ass and taking names, apparently. into the stratosphere in the first minute with the chugging Neon Knights, one tune that Geezer was certainly present for. And here's where I gotta tell you where I land on this record. I like it. Hell, I love it. And I've heard it a few times over the years before really diving into the Sabbath catalog to do research for this season, but I can never pinpoint why a mere change in vocalist wouldn't catch my ear the same way when, hey, after all, it's still Bill, Geezer, and Tony, right? So here's my own deal, and I'm working through it right here in your ears. Black Sabbath lyrics were mostly written by Geezer Butler up until this point. And sure, you could get into sci-fi and religious territories, but a lot of the times, frankly, those lyrics were more honest about social issues from their vantage point than they ever emphasized occult stuff. But here, Dio writes the words, which is totally fair for the functioning frontman of a band to do. Just... All those jokes that people make about Ronnie focusing too often on wishing wells and rainbows and whatnot, well, it turns out that's not really a joke and that's just a massive sea change that you have to get used to.
aside from that, I can't find fault. And there isn't really a fault. Wishing Well is an awesome song. Because as a vocalist, Ronnie James Dio is simply no joke. I mean, listen, none of the Sabbath vocalists were ever under par in my book, but Dio's voice is just as authoritative in its delivery and tone as Tony's guitar is. This could be a really, really cool musical marriage. Lady the band has seemed to pare down to just some bare essentials, just their pummeling natural tones and little else in the way of distraction, I personally attribute that to the help of producer Martin Birch. See, this time around, Dio wanted a fresh set of ears for a fresh set of tunes, and in the past, if Tony were waiting for someone to say, show up and play the bass, he might have whiled away the time experimenting with other ways to fill up the frequency spectrum. It's my guess that Martin Birch wanted to help keep this as true to the prospects of their musical vision as possible, and this leads to some drier tones, kind of like we had on Never Say Die, and I can't pretend that that's not a desirable thing. unmistakable strains of the absolutely massive and unrushed title track. It's a track I was actually tempted to give the top honors to here as it really seems to sum up the new direction quite well, sort of like, hey, here's the heights of what our new direction can currently be. I mean, that soaring bit of vocal harmony that Ronnie lays down right before another chugging, driving change in direction while never losing the initial groove, the, the initial, oh, you know, it's still kind of a standard rock tempo, but it has just enough swing to it that it's pretty unmistakable that this is beyond the shadow of a doubt the right path for these cats to be taken at this very moment. saying about the sea change in lyrics? Well, it's still here, but in the title track of Heaven and Hell, it's also pretty damn smart. Tons of double meanings, twisted tarot readings, and whatnot, and again, it isn't quite what you're used to with Black Sabbath at this point chronologically, but hey, neither is anything else for the last two freaking records. In fact, the biggest surprise to me in their new direction, it's actually the lack of deviation from straight-up hard rock. They found a sound, and they ran straight towards it, never looking back again once Martin Birch pressed record. And just like I stated in last season, when we were covering The Who, when a band sounds this authoritative, this sure of themselves, you just gotta get out of their way and leave room for them to do what they're gonna do to you.
Now that, that's a bit of the song Children of the Sea, one song that might actually have been a holdover from the last aborted album sessions with Ozzy Osbourne, though surely with a drastically different melody. See, Dio wasn't just a technically better vocalist, he's just a different type of communicator in general. He's just always pretty damn direct, and even when you think he might be miring himself in castles and swords, well, no, most times he's legit talking about castles and swords. On Lady Evil, he's only talking about one specific lady who happens to be evil. Simple, direct, straight ahead. A bunch of things that you couldn't really claim about the Sabbath group since the very beginning, and frankly, with its ecologically inspired lyric, Children of the Sea is one of the three biggest highlights in an album full of them. And sure, I like the songs Die Young and Walk Away as much as anyone who's got a soft spot for hard AOR rock, but besides the title track and Children of the Sea, my tops go to the closing and heavily emotional Lonely is the Word. It's not just the lurching tempo, it's not just the band taking some really smooth dips into really subtle and then emotionally explosive territory for the first time in, well, I don't even know how long. It's that lyric. Yes, the two sets of lyrics. Ronnie sings of a man who had everything but is trying to rebuild, which is pretty clearly some type of metaphor for both his and Tony's positions here, but that second set of lyrics I referred to? They're not actual words, but let's face facts. Tony Iommi's guitar is his voice, and he says more in the solos of this song than he potentially ever could communicate in mere conversation. just no getting around it. Is Sabbath better with Dio? No, but only because Tony's the fucking center, period. Is this their most consistent album since Sabotage? My ears say yes. Heaven and Hell is deservedly seen as a landmark hard rock masterpiece. And while I do hear, I guess like bits of filler and growing pains embedded here and there in the grooves, and I mean, they're, they're few and far between, this thing rocks, and pretty much all of the praise you've ever heard dumped on it is deserved. It's just focused. Very tightly focused, and that's the biggest difference. Put it on, rev your engines, and catch the buzz. Black Sabbath worked a lot in their first 10 years, and a lot of the stuff, it, it just comes out in the music, so to talk about the records is to talk about how they were made often. But we're heading to a very interesting period of time that kind of doesn't let up. Much like in our last season on The Who, this period, often the events in between explain everything you need to know about the album, why it might be different, not what you're expecting, better than you're expecting, worse than you're expecting, strange sound quality. Because there's more at play here than just, say, 
one member of Black Sabbath, or two members of Black Sabbath. No, this is a big pile of circumstances. A big pile of circumstances created by a lot of very passive-aggressive people who don't have the best memories of the period because, well, cocaine was flowing like Evian around there. Well, I'd realize that basically once you get to the album Born Again, there's just not a ton of really in-depth coverage. As a matter of fact, nearly all of the records after Born Again went out of print, stayed out of print. I was going to have to dig hard to find out what was going on here. Now, black-sabbath.com was a wonderful resource. From there, I moved on to some other books that would help illustrate the story, not the least of which was the very helpful book Iron Man. Yes, Tony Iommi's autobiography, but there was a really interesting documentary on YouTube made by a fan, a fan named Razorfist. He's got quite the following, and he set me down some rabbit holes with his information that I never even realized were holes where digging needed to be done. Instead of trying to just learn everything he knew, I went straight to the source and I asked him, hey, tell me what you know, how does this stack up to you? Because I'm kind of trying to relearn it, but you seem pretty well studied. So he's going to be joining me later in the episode to talk a little bit about when things go a little bit sideways. But the real question here is how sideways did it actually ever go? Did Black Sabbath go sideways or did the industry go sideways? That is the focus of where we're heading this week. And the best place to start? <laughs> you know it's Mob Rules. Sure, November of 1981 saw the release of the 10th official Black Sabbath album, called Mob Rules, but it wasn't an easy road to get there. I mean, it never really is with Black Sabbath, and it's not gonna be in the future, but the band saw some hardcore drama while promoting the Heaven and Hell album. So Bill Ward had been struggling with alcoholism for quite some time, but the issue was certainly exacerbated by losing his closest friend in the Black Sabbath organization, one Ozzy Osbourne. According to Tony Iommi, right before a show in Denver, Bill simply got into his tour bus and drove the hell away without warning. They quickly drafted Vinny Apice to fill the drum throne, which I'll talk about in a moment, but things were just different this time around. An odd tension crept in while Tony, Geezer, and Ronnie James Dio further learned how to work together, and again, this really was new territory because Dio knew his way around a musical scale, and he was able to offer genuine suggestions that would change the face of the music, not to mention his incredibly different vocal delivery and vocabulary. So let's remember that by 1981, a completely different British invasion than the one normally talked about was hitting U.S. shores, what many referred to as the new wave of British heavy metal. Mostly when people use this term, they're referring to groups like Iron Maiden and Saxon with room for melodic stuff like early Def Leppard and the more extreme tones from the likes of Venom. Now, I'm of the opinion that the name new wave of British heavy metal is a misleading misnomer catch-all because heavy music never really, never really went anywhere, and you can trace the roots of heavy music as far back as you please. But there's no getting around that people saw this as a movement of some sort, and Black Sabbath's more direct approach on Heaven and Hell, as well as Mob Rules, slipped snugly right alongside those sounds and those groups. 
It seemed like a good time to mention this because for mob rules, Black Sabbath retained the production services of Martin Birch, who really kicked Iron Maiden's classic second album, Killers, into goddamn stratosphere. And while this record could certainly have ended up sounding merely like a product of its time, it's Birch's penchant for drier tones that I think ultimately really keeps these records so timeless in general. As such, it's just a good hard rock record that never sounds dated, never sounds out of place, and frankly, I'll go one better than the general consensus about this record. See, most most seem to see this as, I mean, at least as far as I've picked up, they see it as like the slightly lesser kid brother of the Beyond Solid Heaven and Hell album, and mostly refer to this one with the dreaded word, underrated. I've been guilty of it too, but... I'm of the opinion that it's not only the equal of its predecessor, on a purely personal level, I actually dig it more. But again, most people in the Sabbath camp were getting pretty far into their cups, baggies or whatever at this point, including Martin Birch, and they'd even fired Don Arden for a period of time, replacing him with Blue Oyster Cult's longtime manager Sandy Perlman. Confusion and chaos reigned, and the only constant was the music, but even that was almost compromised. This era saw the band try to just straight up buy their very own studio, but as fate would have it, somehow they'd ended up with an acoustic nightmare, and try as they might, they just could not drum up a workable guitar sound. And I don't think that I have to specify just how important the guitar is to Black Sabbath, right? So the band took one crack at recording the title track in John and Yoko's house for the heavy metal soundtrack, and many folks, even some band members themselves, actually prefer this rendition to the one that would eventually grace the titular album, but I'm getting pretty far ahead of myself. If you listen to fools, the the group was never going to be finished with, quote, proving themselves with Dio in Ozzy's place, though Warner Brothers liked Ronnie enough that they even offered him a solo deal, and as one might imagine, that'd be the tense topic over breakfast more than a few times in this period. And now it was going to be an even more gargantuan task to convince the masses that this was a viable Black Sabbath now that the band's timekeeper had also changed. And while Bill Ward is all feel, Vinnie Apice was a massive fan of Bill's style and knew how to approximate it when needed, but he also had an extra element of precision and speed that Bill never seemed to show on a Sabbath recording. Not in great detail, at least, both great drummers and each one perfect for the material that they were handed at the time. Really? So how does it stack up? Hear me now, believe me later. If my opinion that Black Sabbath's second act truly starts with technical ecstasy, then Mob Rules is the unparalleled peak of Act 2. I mean, any album that kicks off like this has a lot to live up to. I know that we can probably thank the great Coca-Cola company for the hyped tempos, but high or not, you can't argue that everyone is not firing on all cylinders, especially on the opening song, Turn Up the Night. Dio's throwing some double-tracked vocal harmonies into the mix, Tony's soloing all over the song while never actually intruding or stepping on another player's toes, and it's pretty hard to argue that Geezer and Vinny aren't just a dream team of a rhythm section in Bill's absence. And lyrically on first impression, this track doesn't seem to suggest much more than 
hey, we're here, everything's kind of dark, but let's rock. And that's not foreign to me on a rock and roll album, and neither are the stomping riffs found in that one-two punch that follows in Voodoo. Speaking of voodoo, I'm not sure exactly how they figured it out or how he got the job producing a Black Sabbath album under such a circumstance, but Martin Birch was apparently petrified by the very idea of anything occult-related. So, of course, keep in mind that Tony's idea of a good prank could literally be just, eh, let's set Bill on fire again. At the time, when I tell you that Sir Iomi basically brought a fake voodoo effigy into the studio to stick pins in, eventually leading Martin Birch to start believing that the group was actually harming his physical being. <laughs> oh, those jokesters. Anyways, the song Voodoo was released as a single and actually cracked the top 50 in the US. It's a deserved cooker. Now elsewhere, you'll find a return to moody instrumental passages like E5150, which you guessed it, if you turn the numbers into Roman numerals, you'll end up spelling out the word evil. And wait, look, am I crazy here? Or is there far more religious and black magic related imagery on these albums with Dio now than ever before? I mean, I figured we'd predictably hit on some wishing wells and whatnot, but with Geezer, not holding fast as the main lyricist, I wasn't really expecting for the Dio albums to be so relentlessly obsessed with the darkness. I mean, think about all those stories of the crazy covens showing up to greet the original four-piece backstage at their hotels, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty surprised here. Clearly and obviously, Ronnie James Dio is one of the greatest goddamn vocalists in the history of popular music, I just wasn't prepared for him to bring more evil imagery to Sabbath tunes than geezer freaking butler, so just color me surprised. Now that I've said that, when I tell you about the track Sign of the Southern Cross, it might be easy to think, oh, great, upside down cross, got it, but not so fast. First, there's some rainbows in the track. The Southern Cross in question is a constellation of stars, and Man, these guys have really mastered the art of light and shade. Fade away, fade away, break the crystal there's another great epic closing track arriving under the name Over and Over, and it's not too dissimilar in vibe from Heaven and Hell's Lonely is the Word until you get to that blistering solo in the outro, the one that shows the band all working together to punctuate everything Tony's doing, where a prior lineup might have merely held down the groove, but each in their own separate ways, this lineup will let Tony drive, and I can't really say it's for the worse. I mean, there's just not a duff track on this whole platter, and so far, it's my personal highlight of what I'm dubbing Act 2 for Black Sabbath. It's raw, it's primal, but it's not undercooked either. For example, 
You ever heard the more Zeppelin than Zeppelin of slipping away? To my ears, the heaviest hitters are definitely loaded closer to the front of Mob Rules, but the stuff on the back half, oh, it ain't no slouch. I mean, if the tempo changes and the wistful and sprawling, falling off the edge of the world don't excite you, I don't suppose there's any hope that the second act of Black Sabbath is gonna be up your alley, because in my opinion, this thing is every bit as solid as nearly anything that preceded it under the brand name Black Sabbath, but the difference is it's leaner, it's more focused, and it's not trying to change the world, it's just a great hard rock record. That's all it's set out to be, and it succeeds in spades. actually a bit of controversy with the album art for Mob Rules too. Nothing quite like occultism this time, but rather it's a mob stretching out some skin with blood everywhere done up by the brothers Hildebrandt, and it's not so much the blood itself that people were concerned about, but more so what they thought was hidden in it. And that urban legend is that the words kill Ozzy are spelled out in said blood, which is a claim that Tony Iommi has long refuted, chalking it up to those, you know, Paul is dead types that scour every single bit of imagery looking for hitting meanings, and I would make more fun of the phenomenon if I weren't kind of one of them, because how do you think I got this job? But that said, I don't personally see it in the artwork either. It'll probably help to remember that in the climate of the time, Ozzy Osbourne versus Ronnie James Dio was a very, very real thing, especially to the fans. And it would have been just way too easy to be happy that both exist. No, it's gotta be a fight, always, every time. And man, it was about to get ugly. I mean, Ozzy was going on stage with his solo group, and he was like hanging a dwarf named Ronnie. I, you know, I don't want to get into TMZ territory or anything, because gossip isn't what discography is all about. But in this case, we gotta get our hands dirty to actually cover this stuff, so... Alright, Don Arden was the band's manager for a while, right? His daughter Sharon ended up basically nursing a pretty depressed, unhealthy, and rather despondent Ozzy Osbourne back to being stage-ready, arming him with a crack ban and eventually even marrying him. But something, and I'm not sure what, got into some people's heads that any Black Sabbath without Ozzy would be a forgery, and that also seemed to include Ozzy Osbourne and Sharon. Now, as this is not Ozzyography, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on his side of things in his solo career in this season. But here's the chain of events that follows Mob Rules. But please try to keep in mind, I can't possibly cover every bit that was done in this period. I'll do my best to hit on some of the most important bullet points. So, a couple of years prior to this, Patrick Meehan original Black Sabbath manager flexed his muscles by releasing an unauthorized Black Sabbath live album called Live at Last. Now, it's crude and pretty bootleggy, but I also actually find it really charming in its honesty. I believe it sounds like the first iteration of Sabbath might have actually sounded on any given night, no gussying up. However, no one in either camp was actually happy about the thing, so Sabbath went to work on issuing a proper live album with Dio on vocals, but Ozzy, okay, 
look, I really am simplifying this story quite a bit, but he basically Rush released a live album that featured 100% covers of old Sabbath tunes called Speak of the Devil, more or less to beat the band to the punch. It might have been because he didn't like the idea of the public hearing Ronnie sing something like Iron Man before he got the chance to put his two cents in, but unfortunately, Speak of the Devil basically flips the bird to any contribution by any member of the original lineup that isn't Ozzy. I mean, Ozzy even enlisted Brad Gillis from Night Ranger to replace Tony Iommi on his own goddamn songs since his own band, yes, Ozzy's own band, reportedly refused to take part in something so disrespectful and it led Ozzy to a serious drinking binge and eventually he peed on the Alamo. Fan reaction about this actually came up when I was talking to Jim Myers of Milk Carton Superstars about the effect that Bill Ward had on him, and here's what he said. We were in the middle of talking about Symptom of the Universe. Well, let's check back in with Jim. So to me, the best Bill moment on that is Symptom of the Universe. And uh, there's a lot of good points uh, throughout that album, but that one in particular, again, it's this this opportunity for him to to do these roles that are are a little unpredictable, um, and 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 ultimately bounce the song back into the the, the drive, um, you know, the part I'm talking about, the. Uh, all those things that he's doing there that's what i really like about about that but most and also the the dexterity of getting back into the drive of the song that always struck me as as the best part for me there and uh, i think um again it's been a while since i heard this album that i'm going to mention but speak of the devil live album that ozzy put out um and and i don't know the story exactly but it all seems to be coming back to me that this was a a chance to try to get a ho- ahead of live evil and there was like a, a competitiveness to this and you're probably doing some research on it or something the reason i bring it up is that album if i remember correctly that um speak of the devil live album that ozzy put out with his band that was just black sabbath songs yeah i'll talk about this a little bit because i'm i'm of that era and as um as a senior in high school who's really suddenly into Black Sabbath over the last year or so, and going back and listening to the old stuff, you have to keep in mind that for those of us living that and being huge Sabbath fans in the early 80s, the idea of a Black Sabbath reunion, Ozzy and, and, and Geezer and Tony and Bill all together again, was like, no, that's never gonna happen. That's just impossible dream stuff. And it was even it was even hard to fathom Ozzy doing those songs and then suddenly there's an entire double album of them and we all knew i mean you, we're not supposed to like this but it's it's Ozzy doing all black sabbath songs are you kidding i mean let's just digest it but the reason i bring it up in comparison to the symptom of the universe track on sabotage is that that album the live album uh speak of the devil begins with symptom of the universe and listen to that and listen to the album aside from the fact that the musicians aren't black sabbath the energy is is just not there on that track and that's because it's not bill ward it's not bill ward's feel and swing that is is a hidden yet integral part of keeping that song tight and together 
Now, faithful discography listeners know that we generally don't go too in-depth or all-in with live albums unless it's a massive component to the recorded history, but that's kind of why I'm bringing this up. Black Sabbath now needed what would become Live Evil. They needed it out on the shelves as soon as humanly possible, maybe faster. And you might have heard about this famous situation. The story goes that Ronnie James Dio and Vinny Apice would go in and secretly tweak the tapes and mixes when Tony and Geezer weren't around, but it's frankly easier for me to believe that Ronnie and Vinny merely showed up at a half-decent hour, tried to work, did so on their own respective instruments, and then assumed that Geezer and Tony would just take care of the mixing of their own instruments when they got to the studio, and then it would all just sound the way everybody wanted it to sound, right? I'm not saying this is a fact by any means, it's just a theory. No matter what actually went down, someone felt that the album was being, yup, sabotaged, pun intended, and the band just crumbled to bits, literally. Like as of right now, at this point in their history, there just kinda is no Black Sabbath. Live Evil would make it to the shelves, but it would seem that with all the passive-aggressive infighting, no one even thought to turn up the volume of the audience on the live record. And while the performances are really, really good, they do tend to sometimes sound like they're being played to a really big crowd that is unfortunately a few towns over. Live Evil did alright in the UK sales-wise, while Ozzy seemed to win the sales battle in the United States, and this looked like the end. Obviously it wasn't. Tony Iommi had faced down endings before, and it doesn't appear that he'd grown a taste for giving up just yet. No matter how many people told him to pack it up without Ozzy and Bill, he just kept going. August of 1983 saw the release of Black Sabbath's 11th studio record, Born Again. You know the story. Even if you don't think you know it, I assure you, if you're tuned in right now, you are well aware of this whole shebang. Unfortunately for me, the least talked about aspect of the Born Again era of Sabbath tends to be the actual music contained on the platter, and I can't promise that I'm going to treat it much differently, because straight up, and I mean this on a completely personal level, I don't think I like this album very much, and I had to struggle, struggle to get a real read on it. There are really cool riffs and some really neat and promising moments, but overall, on the whole, it just ain't my thing, and I've tried. To quote Otto from The Simpsons, oh lord, how I did try, I'm still trying actually, up to and including now and hell, the future, because for an album that I'm not that into, it's fascinating as hell, and I feel like if I replay it enough, I'll eventually unlock some mystical secret, but so far that hasn't really worked out in my favor, so getting the drama out of the way, and assuming that's something we can ever really do with Black Sabbath, Don Arden comes back into the picture, Dio and Vinnie Apice are gone by now, Ian Gillen though. Ian Gillen was the lead singer of Deep Purple during what's arguably their biggest radio period, and I mean, hey, you want to talk about 70s heavyweights? 1970s Deep Purple and Black Sabbath are basically near the heights of Led Zeppelin as far as being a concert draw, but by 1983, things were very different. Of course, uh, Tony and Geezer need another Hail Mary miracle of a lead singer to come in Dio style and totally save the day. Ian Gillen gets a call inviting him out for drinks with at least Tony and Geezer, and depending on who's telling the story, they either got one, drunk, two, very drunk, or three, blackout drunk. And they either decided to, one, form a supergroup, or two, have Ian join Black Sabbath full stop. I'm serious here. That truth changes nearly every time someone else tells the story. 
Ian Gillen has claimed in interviews that he was woken the next morning by a phone call from his manager that informed him that he'd agreed to join Black Sabbath during his night out, which he didn't seem to recall. Tony Iommi claims in his autobiography that it was supposed to be a completely different band, not Black Sabbath. Don Arden certainly thought it was Black Sabbath. Ian Gillen's manager certainly thought it was Black Sabbath. And now the press was getting in on it, so if those stories are to be believed, the only people that didn't want this new union to be called Black Sabbath were... The brand new lineup of Black Sabbath. Of course, fans are totally surprised and more than a bit curious. How can you not be? Perhaps most surprising of all was the return of Bill Ward to the drum throne. Not just because he'd been in a bad way, not just because he'd left in such a weird and just I'm out of here kind of manner, but he had also at this point only been sober for a really short amount of time. And I cannot imagine a worse group to try to be in while staying clean than Black Sabbath in 1983. So no matter what intention Tony, Geezer, and Ian might have initially had, the spine of that record was gonna say Black Sabbath on it. And so they went off to the manor in Oxfordshire to begin work on this controversial platter. Many Black Sabbath enthusiasts believe that there is no in-between. You either love or hate Born Again. And I'll say this much, the album cover? That's pretty much your litmus test. Take a look at the cover art to Born Again. If you see it and you want to know what the content sound like, this is gonna be your jam. If you can't stomach the demonic newborn with the clashing colors, I don't imagine you'll have much room for songs like Digital Bitch in your heart, so it's kind of a moot point. But that cover? Oh, it's a way bigger deal than it appears to be at a glance. On one hand, it's a surefire way to piss off your parents, which is usually a pretty good sign for a heavy record. On the other hand, the artist is Steve Crusher Jewel. Or is that pronounced Jewel? Well, if you're hearing this, Crusher, my apologies. But Crusher, he was known at the time for designing record covers for one Ozzy Osbourne. Yes, you guessed right. Don Arden was trying to yank every person from Ozzy's team possible to get what looks to be some strange revenge on his own daughter. Was Crusher genuinely trying to sabotage the album with the submitted artwork? Because let's face it, you could make a great argument for that, but make no mistake, at the end of the day, the very existence of Born Again and its ensuing fallout is something that Don Arden seems to have willed into being. I'm of the opinion that, of the five, Tony, Geezer, Bill, Ian, and of course the trusty Jeff Nichols, they were doing the best they could under the circumstances, but Don was just about as off the rails with his ideas as Tony's ever-growing reliance on cocaine was. So it ain't pretty, but we gotta talk about this record. A good point about it is that if you want to know what the recording sessions were like, you wouldn't need to look much further than the lyrics themselves. The album opens with the song Trashed, and Ian Gillen sings about wrecking Bill Ward's new car, which is pretty sad, as by all accounts, Bill didn't really have much for himself at the time, and I'm gonna try not to think about that too deeply. And the track Disturbing the Priest? No, it's not really a pun. There was a literal priest down the road, and apparently the band was rehearsing so loudly that it was drowning out their choir practice. What I'm getting at is that Ian seems to be generally in charge of the lyrics, but he's a much more autobiographical writer than Geezer or Ronnie James Dio tended to be, which immediately sets this far, far, far apart from anything that's ever preceded it under this name. It's not just a new vocalist, it's yet another completely different lyrical style for fans to get used to. It wasn't completely unrecognizable, though. Instrumental mood music that would connect tracks together made a resurgence here again in tracks like Stonehenge and The Dark. So why am I just talking about this 
rather than showing you a bit of it. Because first, we got to talk about two things. One is uh, the sound quality. Basically, something went massively wrong between Robin Black's production and the mastering process, or maybe even earlier than that. But they ended up with a pretty muddy sounding record. I never really minded it sounding murky because I love lo-fi and outsider artists, so fidelity is not going to be the immediate turnoff for me that it is for others. But just in case you weren't aware of the situation, I didn't really want you blindsided by thinking that there was something wrong with whatever you're listening to this on. The album just kind of sounds murky as hell, though a CD issue on Sanctuary from 2011 does brighten it up quite noticeably. However, the one I've got handy is a UK pressing on wax, so yeah. The second thing is a bit more personal about why this record doesn't totally work for me, and that's ultimately that Ian Gillen is a damn fine rock and roll vocalist, but he not only simply doesn't fit, he's up so loud in some of these masterings that to my ears his vocal takes almost sound surgically grafted on after the fact. No snark and nothing against the guy, but I just can't reconcile his voice booming over this music. The chemistry is just generally off, and I can't imagine that I'm alone in this. My deal with not being into the Born Again album has very little to do with the usual complaints, like the cover, the sound, not liking the songs, whatever you've got. My deal is that Gillen doesn't fit, and there's very few times that I can just lose myself in the music before this screaming rock and roll god just sort of yells at the over the riffs and goes into a falsetto scream occasionally that okay look he's he's really good at screaming but it doesn't really add or detract here it's just kind of there and it feels like ian's doing his own thing but not letting the song command what it needs rather instead he's just being ian gillen while black sabbath is just being black sabbath and it never quite congeals for me I mean, at least in comparison to the voice of Ronnie James Dio. Say what you want about Dio. If you're a Broken Glass original lineup fanatic, but you can't argue that Dio isn't a vocal master, Ian was hitting the precipice of something going a little screwy with his range. Maybe it was all the years of touring, the partying, not enough rest, or maybe he'd gone back to work a little too quickly after alleged vocal damage in 1982. Any number of factors. I feel kind of bad saying this because the guy had such an impossible feat in front of him. He was almost destined, I mean destined to fail on some level. And I feel like I'm ganging up on the dude. So with all that out of the way, I guess it's time to actually weigh in on what's contained in the grooves because all problems aside, Tony, Geezer, and Bill are in Black Sabbath together again. And that's really all the promise I need to go through this album one more time, which is what I tell myself literally every single time I spin it. I was checking out this podcast that a discography fan told me about right uh, when we wrapped up our Who season. It's called the Classic Rock Album by Album Podcast, and in their episode on Rush's Grace Under Pressure album, they talked about the strange relationship that you end up with when you play a record over and over for a podcast like this. One of the hosts had mentioned that it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, and I don't know that I'd dare go that far, but they aren't totally wrong. I played Born Again over and over to try to get it for you. Not because I was drawn to it naturally. So I went through a lot of phases with this sucker. So at first, my very first impression was exactly the same as it was many years ago when I heard it and decided it wasn't for me. And that was, I don't like it. Then, after around the 40th playthrough, I was starting to come around to certain bits of the record while getting angry. Literally angry at the bits that annoyed me on any level. And then literally today, it hit me. Every time you hear a member of Black Sabbath talk about this album, 
they're laughing. Take the album seriously if that's your bag, but Black Sabbath, they think this whole situation is just hilarious. You put that together with Geezer's response when he first saw the cover, something along the lines of, it's shit, but it's also great, well, it hit me. Where the hell else were they supposed to go? They literally did not sign up for this. And then I played the album one more time, looking at it in sort of a cartoonish and high camp version of where hard rock was in 1983 instead, and then I got it. kick off with a song called Trashed, and by title alone, one might think that it's just going to be an ode to partying, but no, it's pretty much a play-by-play -play of Ian Gillen wrecking a car in Richard Branson's go-kart track. It's basically a celebration of drinking and driving, and that's just gotta be at least a little tongue-in-cheek, right? a version of this record at my disposal that doesn't contain the vocals, but follow me here. Imagine the bridge without Ian. Listen to Bill's completely insane roles and tell me you aren't kinda going, hell yes, Sabbath is back inside. Again, um, I'm I'm an Ian Gillen fan as a vocalist. He was he's somebody that that I really thought was was pretty amazing. Um, when when Ian Gillen joined Sabbath, it was something I was immediately interested in. The sound of that album, you know, I think we were so enthused about it at the time that we overlooked, in hindsight, maybe some of the the cloudiness of of that that entire mix and and the way that just comes across but i loved it at the time especially i loved it it was it was a weird combination i think the way it's recorded probably messes a little bit with what bill contributed to that album because it's just a wash uh with with the rest of the sound but it doesn't mean he's not swinging He's still swinging. That's just a little more commentary from Jim Myers from Milk Carton Superstars. Say, did you know that Trashed made it to the PMRC's Filthy 15? That's right, the good old Parents Music Resource Center that lobbied for warning stickers to be placed on albums that they decided were objectionable. <gasps> the committee that was famously shut the hell down by John Denver, Dee Snyder, and an amazing bit of testimony from discography luminary Frank Zappa. Yeah, that one. They didn't dig the supposed glorification of drinking and driving, but instead, this song got talked about on the nightly news because of the PMRC's efforts. Boy, that sure backfired, huh? And according to Steve Pilkington's book, Black Sabbath Song by Song, we shouldn't fret too badly about Bill's car getting totaled, as he reportedly did something to Ian's boat in return, so... Yep, back to the music. I feel like a friggin' old man going on and on about how Ian just kind of screams all over the place, but when it's effective, it's really effective. Like, dig how completely maniacal he sounds coming out of the instrumental track known as Stonehenge and directly into Disturbing the Priest. And again, this 
this track ended up being incredibly solid for me once I realized it wasn't just trying to hang a six minute dirge based on what I thought was just a titular pun at first. Instead, this album that does tend to be pretty balls to the wall for the most part, hits on just the right amount of dynamics, weirdness, and this, this bit of vocal harmony from Ian, this is where it's at. And truthfully, more stuff like this would go a long way on the album. Just gotta listen to the night. As a matter of fact, Disturbing the Priest almost ended up being my favorite track on the album with lyrics that actually completely fit the vibe, talking about good not being able to exist without comparable amounts of evil. Almost. We'll get there. Anyways, for all the flack that Born Again has taken over the years, including from me, you can't argue that this didn't end up being pretty damn influential, what with riffs showing up and other people's songs, which I gotta admit, I felt like a real chump when that Steve Pilkington book that I just mentioned noted the similarities between the riff to Zero the Hero and a certain very famous song recorded by Guns N' Roses. YouTube documentary Black Sabbath Metal Mythos actually goes way more in depth on that kind of thing, but getting back to Zero the Hero, this is pretty different from this kind of deceptive album. See, you do get doom and gloom on the first half, and a lot of the back half is just kind of regular old AOR, which we'll get to in a minute, but this one? On the surface it looks to be about a washed up musician, but then there's this wacky and unpredictable stuff happening here, like Ian just making up brand new words and writing lines like with a magic in the music as they eat raw liver. This is really emblematic of how the album could have gone. I mean, look, facts are facts. This is a strange band in a strange situation, and when they embrace the weirdness, really embrace it, that is when Born Again works best. track, the keyboards come in, and the mix fades up an almost military-sounding snare, and all the relatively static parts of the song converge into one big gloriously strange mess. Much of what remains on the album isn't quite as surprising. If you press play on the song Hotline and you like the first few seconds, cool, but don't expect any surprises because it's probably going to do that same thing over and over. Not nearly as many twists, turns, tempo changes, and the like as we've been used to, even on side one. And I think that's what might just make this album come across so blandly until you really, really dig. And that's assuming that you didn't just like the album from the word go, of course. And ditto for Keep It Warm and Digital Bitch. going to pretend that Tony isn't just wailing in the intro to this tune, but also his guitar tone, it, it's so strange and mid-rangey that it's almost fighting for the same frequency range as Ian Gillen's voice, which I think accounts for a lot of the general tone here, but okay, Digital Bitch. 
plenty of people over the years have intimated that it might be about Sharon being all about the daughter of a rich businessman, but that whole verse about how famous she is dissuades me from thinking there's much merit to that. I mean, was Sharon a famous entity back then? No, really, I'm asking. <laughs> I have no idea if the average record buyer knew much of anything about Sharon in 1983, but I can see why someone looking backwards might guess that, especially since it follows Zero the Hero, and when you consider how on the nose Ian's lyrics mostly are on the record, I get it. I just don't think it's all that plausible, and I think the fact that this is the most commonly referenced thing about the song says all you really need to know about how the song is as a composition, but listen, it's not completely turtles all the way down. I can't deny how mighty and majestic the title track is with an open slow burn vamp that reminds me a lot of Zappa's Watermelon and Easter Hay, and Ian Gillen attacks this one in a much more bluesy shout, and this... This is my jam on the record. The first half of the album all have high points somewhere, but dig how effectively Ian uses that infamous scream on this one. Listen, I'm in no way blind to the fact that my favorite tracks on the last three Black Sabbath records have been the slow burning slower tunes, but on this title track, it's got the one thing I can't always find elsewhere on the album, and that's that it sounds genuine on everyone's part. And considering that Tony Iommi's moves in the not-too-distant future would accentuate some bluesier moods, I don't think I'm that far off the mark. If this album had been, say, half like Zero the Hero and Disturbing the Priest, with another half sounding this genuine and sincere, Born Again still would have been a total anomaly in their catalog, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it would have grabbed a few more people along the way. It cracked the top 40 in the US, the top 5 in the UK, but remains controversial and just kind of funny. Because Born Again is a lot of things, but there's no one particular description to accurately sum it up. Like, look at me here. I kicked off completely convinced I hated it, did a 180, and now I'm literally fighting with myself on the microphone here, wrestling with how I even feel about it up to this very second. So I can't say it isn't entertaining and fascinating. But also, for a lineup that technically formed before they'd even freaking played together? Man, this could have been so much worse. So anyways, I'm pretty much bound by law to tell you the following things about the fallout from this period. Black Sabbath went on tour, and yes, this is the one where they would build a replica of Stonehenge for the stage that was so massive that they couldn't fit it into pretty much any venues on their itinerary. You're welcome, Spinal Tap. Oh, and Don Arden thought it'd be a good idea to paint a dwarf red and have him uh, appear to commit suicide as the demonic baby at the very beginning of the show, and I'm pretty sure you can guess how that went down. Again, Sabbath's loss, Spinal Tap's gain. Bill Ward relapsed and was replaced for the tour by one Bev Bevan from ELO, and I'm pretty impressed by what a heavy hitter Bev turned out to be when given room to flex those muscles. And say, didn't Spinal Tap have a rough time keeping drummers around? 
Fans were and remain divided on the album and the tour, with some taking particular exception to not only the way that Ian would sing the older material, Begging mercy for this Satan laughing spreads his Some critics took exception to Black Sabbath putting Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water into the set, but as you can hear in this recording from the Reading Festival in 1983 that appeared on the reissue of Born Again, the audience was pretty clearly down with it, at least on this day. Questions abound. Will Born Again ever be properly remixed? The answer is sadly, probably not, as many of the source tapes were reportedly lost or just too degraded. That said, there are early mixes and demos circulating that can give you a glimpse into what could have been, including one of the most promising tracks that was eventually left off of the proper album itself, The Fallen. Tumbling through dead of night I'm falling right out of sight At the end of the tour, Ian Gillen and Bev Bevan took off. Geezer and Tony apparently had a chat with Ozzy about possibly working together again, and according to Tony, that didn't happen for purely, quote, managerial reasons, unquote. Heck, even Bill Ward rejoined for a brief period. By 1985, though the original lineup did pull it together for three songs in the middle of the afternoon at Live Aid, few tuned in knew that there wasn't really completely a Black Sabbath at that point. Even Geezer eventually left. There was just Tony and the unofficially official Jeff Nichols left, and hell, everything I've just said is even debatable. All right, I'm going to level with you. The next record we gotta talk about is The Seventh Star, and if you know anything about the album Seventh Star, you know that the spine says it's by Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi. The waters are murky. There is no right way to talk about this. For this reason, there's probably information that you're gonna hear from me and you're gonna hear from our guest. We're gonna probably repeat some stuff and maybe, just maybe, the actual truth is somewhere up the middle. There are so many different ways you can look at this project, but, one person that absolutely loves this album deeper <laughs> on a deeper level than anyone I've ever seen is the gentleman that I keep referring to that hosted Black Sabbath Metal Mythos, Razor Fist. He's going to introduce himself and he's going to give you his read on what the hell went on here. Then we're going to come back and talk about, well, yeah, we're just going to ping pong this a bit. I am Razorfist, the acerbic Arizonan, who is the diabolical mind behind Metal Mythos, and I will be ranting at you. So, of course, one of the first things that I did was I wanted to ask Razorfist, 
What was his gateway into Black Sabbath? I've always loved the fusion of R&B and metal. I love heavy metal, but I was raised on Motown and Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder. So I got into bands like Dokken, where Don Dokken has a little bit of an R&B soul edge to his voice. I got into uh, Ingve Malmsteen through the Eclipse and Fire and Ice albums with Joran Edman on vocals, who's very much like a Paul Rogers type of singer. And, uh, you know, I really dig that, which is interesting because they had a singer. uh, Black Sabbath briefly replaced Ozzy in the 70s with a singer who was very similar to that. It seems like Tony Iommi likes he likes that kind of singer. Good, good vocalist. Just, you know, not really kind of out of left field. And Ozzy, I've said this for years. I think Ozzy in a lot of ways is a blues singer. I think primarily that's what he's coming from. People don't really interpret it that way because he's really carved out a niche for himself that doesn't sound very much like that. But especially in the early years, if you listen to him after listening to another blues singer, it's just kind of a more shrill kind of a soul blues thing that he's doing, right? After getting into all this stuff, I got into Glenn Hughes. I I kept being recommended Glenn Hughes. And I was like, well, I haven't really listened to much except for maybe a little bit of Deep Purple, but he doesn't do most of the singing on that, and I'm not a big David Coverdale fan. So I was like, oh, what what, what should I listen to? And I go on his Wikipedia of all places, and I'm like, Black Sabbath? When, When the hell was this guy in Sabbath? And I look it up. And it tore my head off. I fucking loved what I was hearing from the Seventh Star album. And that was my first Sabbath record. And so I I got sort of backwards into it. And I actually sort of iterated from Seventh Star. I was like, okay, well, what comes after Seventh Star? Eternal Idol. Loved Eternal Idol. Thought it was great. What's after that? Headless Cross. Fucking killer record. Tear. Killer record. And on and on from there. And of course, I was already familiar with the classic Sabbath material in the sense that, you know, all heavy metal fans are at least tertiarily familiar with at least the hits. I did have um, one or two Sabbath albums that have been bought for me, but, you know, I'd never really dove into Black Sabbath. You know, everyone's got those kind of bands that are like big bands you're expected to be into, but you just never get around to it. Sabbath was one of those bands for me. But when I got into Seven Star, it was like, holy shit, I, I dove dick deep. And thank God Razorfist did dive dick deep into the Seventh Star because I haven't found anybody else that had Seventh Star as a gateway. And he's studied the hell out of this situation, so you know. I just wanted to go to the source where I first realized, hey, something smells weird here and not all these stories match up. I went to Razorfist. I said, hey, I was first put down this rabbit hole by your video, Black Sabbath, Metal Mythos. Tell me where this whole Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi, possibly a solo album, kind of not. Tell me where this begins. How does this happen? How do we just end up in a mess like this? Where does it begin? School me, Razor Fist. Honestly, what you need to look at is the Aussie-Tony Iommi legal battles of the early to mid-80s. Aussie, a lot of people forget, came after the Black Sabbath name and was looking for help. This saga starts in the early 80s. Um, around the time, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Black Sabbath shacked up with Don Arden. There was sort of a family squabble going on because Sharon Osbourne, of course, is Don Arden's daughter. 
the Born Again album was sort of a retaliatory gesture. It was like Don Arden was saying, oh, you want to shack up with this uh, stoned hippie guy? Okay, well, I'm going to put Ian Gillen in Black Sabbath and I'm going to put all my money behind this tour, which is why you wind up with ridiculous Stonehenge sets and a red midget falling off a giant... Like, (laughs) this is is how this sort of comedy of errors happens is Don Arden's trying too hard, essentially. I think that's around the time Ozzy was like, by way of retaliation, Ozzy decided I'm going to go after the Black Sabbath name. And then, of course, the reunion uh, at Live Aid happens around that time, which is a crucial chapter in the Black Sabbath and Seventh Star history. But it's crucial to mention, like, I, I think the problem is you have certain available information. You kind of have to decide what the most logical explanation for it is. And to me, and this is only my personal opinion, but it is informed by fact. There was a battle between Ozzy and Tony Iommi for the name. Tony Iommi at that point was established to have the name for all legal intents and purposes. It was not over, by the way. I believe they went back and forth a few more times over the course of the 80s. They kind of dropped it in the 90s. Then the reunion happened. And then in the 2000s, they finally settled it. But... The first sort of battle had happened then. And at that point, Tony Iommi, for all intents and purposes, won, at least at that point. So the fact that Tony Iommi even had to go back and forth with Ozzy says he wanted the Black Sabbath name at a bare minimum. It says he owned the Black Sabbath name at maximum. And that's probably what the case was. Um, Here's what I know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that it was ever intended to be a Tony Iommi solo project on any discernible level for for numerous reasons. Number one, the people involved with the earliest iterations of the album all contradict what Tony Iommi is saying. David Donato was not told he was joining Tony Iommi solo. Uh, David Donato was announced on MTV that he was the new singer of Black Sabbath. Guess what material was being worked on at the time when David Donato was announced as the singer of Black Sabbath? (laughs) If it was indeed uh, a solo project, then where's the other Sabbath album that David Donato was supposed to work on? Where's all that material? Everything else has been leaked. Where's that nebulous album? Why why isn't that existing in the ether? We have the entire Seventh Star record recorded by Jeff Fenholt, and it's called Star of India, and it's basically a finished album. Like, some of the guitar and drum tracks are carried over into the final mix. That is basically the finished Seventh Star album with Jeff Fenholt singing, and that's the only material we have. And he has said multiple times he was recruited not into Tony Iommi solo, he was recruited into Black Sabbath. Now there's members, people who were recording and stuff who have uh, sort of revised history over time. I'll tell you why I don't necessarily believe them. People like Eric Singer, people like Dave Spitz, right? Who uh, I have respect for those guys, but I think their their version of the story, number one, they've been upfront about the fact that Tony Iommi is sort of a taciturn guy. Like, it wasn't like he was upfront about everything that was going on in the Sabbath camp. He was kind of like, hey, record some drums for me. You know, you know what I mean? Like, he wasn't like, this is a Sabbath uh, album or whatever. And, and number two, you either disbelieve Jeff Fentholt, who's really the only guy who has no reason to lie, because he's the only guy who came into the Sabbath camp with more money than Black Sabbath. 
Uh, people don't realize that. They think that like he was this hired gun and he's sort of trying to glom onto the Sabbath brand to elevate himself. No, Jeff Fenholt had been on the cover of Time Magazine at that point. He was the guy associated with Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, he, he was mega famous. All these other singers like David Donato turned up in a cab. They needed Tony Iommi to drive him down. Jeff Fenholt turns up in a Ferrari. You know what I mean? Like this guy, he didn't need Black Sabbath. Frankly, Black Sabbath needed him at that juncture, especially given their fortunes at that point. I think honestly what happened was they're working on a Sabbath album. The record company was told they're going to have a Sabbath album. It had been, I mean, keep in mind, it had been like a year and some change by that point since the last Sabbath album. So what's going to happen? Uh, the record company is going to come knocking. Hey, where's the Sabbath album? So look, Tony Iommi doesn't record a demo for no reason. You record a demo to show it to the record company. That's what demos exist for. Tony Iommi records the Star of India demos saying, OK, here's your Sabbath album. And he, I think he was probably happy to call it a Sabbath album at that juncture. He was probably like, yeah, you know what? This is pretty aggressive with Jeff Fenholt singing, who's a much more traditional heavy metal singer. Oh, yeah, this is this is a Sabbath record. I'm happy to have this put out as Sabbath. Then Fenholt doesn't work out for whatever reason. There's all kinds of explanations as to why that was. He had some issues at the time, from what I understand. Once Fenholt's out of the picture, now... I think it's possible Tony Iommi decides it needs to be a one-off. Not a non-Sabbath album, but a one-off Sabbath album with a bunch of different singers. I think that, I believe Tony Iommi when he says that. I don't believe him when he says it was an Iommi solo project, sorry. And then this is just my read on it, because you do kind of have to draw your own conclusions. But my understanding is starts out as a Sabbath album. Jeff Fenholt sings on it. Very traditional singer. OK, this is still Sabbath. Then he tries the multiple singers. Can't get the con contractual situation worked out. Uh, as I understand it, he wanted Robert Plant. He wanted Rob Halford. They're all on different record companies. He couldn't get them. So Glenn Hughes comes in and it clicks. Because Glenn Hughes is the exact kind of singer that Tony Iommi digs. You know, he's that bluesy kind of soulful. And Glenn Hughes had lots of ideas. Glenn Hughes, you know, he can write a song, all right? The guy, the guy can write a tune. So he comes in with different vocal melodies than Jeff Fenholt, which you can hear if you compare the Star of India demos. And suddenly the album's clicking. But suddenly it's a lot more soulful. And suddenly it's a lot more bluesy and, dare I say, even more poppy. And suddenly I think Tony Iommi gets cold feet. And he goes to the record company and says, uh, I think maybe a solo project for this. And the record company's like, wait a minute, this is the exact same album you gave us before telling us it was a Sabbath album, but now it's got a different singer and suddenly you want to tell us it's not Sabbath. No, you're contracted for a Sabbath album. Give us a Sabbath album because that's what this was five months ago. 
I, I do think there's a grain of truth to the he wanted it to be a solo project, but I think it was cold feet. And if you and what really bears that out, honestly, is the before and after portrait of how they were talking about the album before it came out and how they were talking about Seventh Star after it came out before it came out. Oh, this is Sabbath. This is Mondo Sabbath. In fact, you can read an interview with Glenn Hughes. I think it was in Kerrang, where Glenn Hughes contrary to all the things he's said in the, in the uh, intervening years, was saying, Sabbath's my band now. Like, I'm not going anywhere. This is my band na- from now until eternity. I'm completely committed. I don't care about the shadow of Ozzy. I don't care about Dio. This is my band now, and I'm digging what we're doing, right? And he was, like, emphatic, chest-beating. Gr- granted, who knows how much of Bogota's best was coursing through his veins at the time. But uh, but this, these are Glenn Hughes' own words. Tony Iommi's talking about how, man, this is it's a new rebirth for Sabbath. It's unbelievable. And it was promoted pretty well. Don Arden gave it the old college try, <laughs> which is one of the reasons they wanted to keep Glenn on tour uh, so badly, even though his voice utterly collapsed uh, f- uh, just a few dates in. But um, and then after the album comes out, suddenly Tony Iommi's making the rounds and it's oh, it was intended to be a solo project. But, uh, you know, the record company intervened and now it's a Sabbath album and blah, blah. I think it was damage control. There's a grain of truth to it, but I think it was convenient for them in terms of damage control to try and move forward by saying that it was intended to be an Iomi solo project, which is odd because critically it was actually received very well. And actually commercially, it didn't do that badly either. Um, the tour sold really well until people heard about, uh, Glenn Hughes's performance, uh, which was notorious. I'm sure there's no shortage of anecdotes from that era, but, um, yeah, it, like it did all right. It was, it was okay. It just, it collapsed thereafter, and I think damage control mode started. I want to thank Razor Fist for helping me fill in some gaps here, but there's still no easy way to talk about the record itself and get it all right. I mean, correct. Because what is correct here? Whatever your ears tell you, I suppose, is correct. But the story behind it? I don't know. There's too many question marks. I'm going to step on a rake. That handle's going to hit me right on the face. I know that fully well going in, but this is what I signed up for, so I'm going to do my best going forward to talk about Seventh Star some more. It came out in January of 86. It was the 12th record attributed to Black Sabbath, but featuring Tony Iommi. Everything I thought I knew about it was wrong. Everything I learned in place of my initial opinions and understanding? Still not sure. Hell, there are folks who don't even consider this album to be canon, but I can and do, and I'm going to let you know up front, this is a case where more time is definitely going to be spent trying to explain this whole thing rather than actually talking about the music, as you have pretty much picked up by now, and that's kind of how Seventh Star always ends up being treated. People's objections to the record seem to be far more ethical in nature rather than being critical of what you actually hear when you put the thing on. So... I'm going to join in that crowd, too. Let's start on a personal note. When I was a teenager, I spent some time living in the smallest of the small towns. I mean, picture what you think a small town where everyone knows everyone else looks like. Then make it smaller and more into gossip and way more into its church. But somehow in this town, there was a literal junk store 
that happened to have a full-on aisle of vinyl records. And I don't think I'd be wrong to ballpark that there must have been 30,000 records stacked to the ceiling in this place, but what was especially shocking was how cool the selection was. And every record was a dollar, so I could afford to just take a chance on a record that looked cool or seemed interesting. Every day, same old thing. I'd save my lunch money from school, hit up the junk store, then I'd buy a few records, and then one curiosity from the cassette aisle to listen to on my 45-minute walk home. Ah, innocent years. Anyways, one day, sitting right on top of the stack is a dubbed cassette, and I don't recall what was on the other side, but side A purported to have an album listed as Black Sabbath, The Seventh Star. Now, the compilation known as We Sold Our Soul for Rock and Roll had been my soundtrack to walking to and from school, detention, and in-school suspension more often than it wasn't, and I'd never heard of this album. Like, nothing about it. It looked super cool, and it only cost me like a quarter or 50 cents or something, so I picked it up. I had no idea what year it came out, who was on it, what era it was from, no info at all besides Black Sabbath, The Seventh Star, and the, there were some song titles on it, but there was nothing to distract me. I was basically walking in blind, and I put the tape in, and the first thing that I hear is... I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I want. Unfortunately, and I do chalk this up to my age at the time, my range of experiences at the time, my understanding of different styles of music, the roots of it, but I remember finding myself kind of bored by the end, especially after all the bluesiness and all the soulfulness, because it wasn't what I was signing up for, at least that's what I thought. I was thinking how I wasn't ready for Sabbath to have what sounded to me like power ballads and, and a much more gravelly-voiced vocalist than I was expecting. It didn't thrill me, and though I did like bits of it a lot, overall, I filed it in the all-too-common I don't get it, therefore this is not for me category, and then I sort of forgot it existed. I literally didn't look back or think twice about it afterwards. I mean, there must have been at least a 15-year gap between listens of a record that I remembered not digging very much, but I did not know anything. So here's kind of the shortest version I can give you that kind of borrows from a whole bunch of different sources and maybe kind of lines up with the party line, but I also know it isn't right. So, ah, oh, fuck it, let's just jump in. I mean, this record's more divisive than Born Again in some circles. There were a few attempts at getting a new Sabbath record together. People came and went. Ian, Geezer, and Bill Ward all included, but nothing really came of it. Tony Iommi mostly remained all alone musically, were it not for Jeff Nichols. So Tony decided it was time to make a solo album, I guess, and why not? Ozzy's doing pretty well solo, Do Dio is killing it solo, so this was actually a pretty logical thing for him to do if you look at that in hindsight. But Tony doesn't fancy himself much of a singer, maybe feeling the pangs of when the band had laughed at him during the Never Say Die sessions when he tried to join in with a gang vocal on the song A Hard Road, but whatever the case, Tony has this idea to get a whole bunch of well-known singers, specifically Robert Plant, David Coverdale, and Rob Halford, according to Mick Wall's fascinating book on Black Sabbath, Symptom of the Universe, and as you can imagine, and as Razor Fist mentioned, that was going to be a contractual nightmare, so it didn't happen. Well... I mean, eventually it did, but that's talk for another season of discography altogether. So I'm going to do my best to tell you what unfolded, but importantly, 
everyone involved was pretty beyond the pale with whatever their addictions were at the time, so getting to the truth or a truth just ain't gonna be easy. If I get something wrong, it is not intentional. I am not stating any of the following as fact. Rather, the story as I kind of understand it. <laughs> oh, I'm protesting too much, but go ahead. You try to verify it. All right. So Tony's starting to work on this music for this supposed solo album, putting a band together. Someone mentions Glenn Hughes for vocals, and Tony's like, yeah, let's give him a ring. Now, Glenn Hughes was also from Deep Purple and was actually one of two of Ian Gillen's replacements, the other being David Coverdale, and you could hear him and Glenn's bass work on albums like Burn, the unfairly underrated album Stormbringer, and the funkier-than-anyone-was-expected album Come Taste the Band. Makes sense on paper, right? Glenn gets to work writing lyrics, as he claims, though for the life of me I can't find any concrete credits as to who wrote what, but I have a very sneaking suspicion that Jeff Nichols is probably left out of that conversation far too freaking often. And I do suspect that that probably created quite, quite the bone of contention. But I digress. Glenn's hearing some pretty neat stuff out of Tony. He's writing, thinking they're making a record together, an album build to Glenn Hughes and Tony Iommi, maybe. That could be cool, right? But around this time, Tony has a meeting with Don Arden and Mo Austin while trying to supposedly ink his solo deal. And at this point, reportedly, it was explained to Tony that he could add an extra zero to his advance if he would deliver a Black Sabbath album instead. And maybe... He even owed Warner Brothers another Sabbath album. Now, in the years since, Glenn is adamant that this is the exact opposite of what he had signed up for. Highly respectful of all Sabbath singers that came before him, he now claims he was horrified at the prospect of replacing Ozzy and Dio, let alone doing Ian's songs again in a new band, singing those songs live every night. Plus, let's not forget that Tony's blood type at this point in time is basically pure, uncut Colombian coke. But Glenn was a next-level user at the time in potentially the worst shape of his entire life. And Glenn claimed that he just finished writing the record, or at least the bulk of it, when he got the news that this was now a Black Sabbath album. And Tony owned the trademark for Black Sabbath at the time, so Warner likely couldn't have just slapped the name on the spine without Tony giving permission. Yet it still persists that this is a solo album that the label renamed Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi, without permission. And I suppose it's very plausibly true that Glenn had no idea, and even that Tony got a good way into the creative process before knowing that he would have to sell a very, very different album under a name it was supposedly not originally destined to be compared against. Plausible, yes but pretty much impossible to confirm because there are 40 sides to this story, and that's if you're only scratching the surface. Whew, okay, I think we're kind of caught up, at least enough to start talking about what's on the album itself. This is around the time that Tony was with Lita Ford, and then eventually Lita got picked up by a new manager named Sharon, and yeah, just in case you thought that drama was going to subside anytime soon, nah, but Lita is important to the record because that's how Eric Singer and Dave Spitz end up here. Now, Eric Singer, of course, would go on to being the drummer for Kiss for longer than even Peter Chris. Bass player Dave Spitz, filling geezer shoes, does not have the nickname The Beast for no reason. I mean, I know it wasn't the norm to make bass-heavy rock records around this time in the 80s, but I'm telling you, if they cranked Mr. Spitz up just a touch here, 
it would have gone a long, long, long way. And yeah, look, with all this confusion, with all of the differing stories, there's going to be fallout no matter how good or bad the record is. I mean, if you've been listening, you know that by now you can always bank on the brand name Black Sabbath bring in some drama along with it. But we'll get to even more of that after we talk about this record, because first things first, while Born Again is a love it or hate it record for many, Seventh Star, as of late, is often despised from what I've gathered over the years. And that's if people know it exists at all. Critics, eh, they seemed to like it at the time, but that didn't really live on. And the people that still think about it are broken glass, hardcore, deep, deep, deep lovers of the Seventh Star material. That said, I actually do get a little bit of the disconnect here. This is a bit of the chorus to the second song on the album called No Stranger to Love, which was also the lone single from the album. Living on the streets, I'm no stranger to love. Why can't you see I'm no stranger to love? So even if this thing did end up getting airplay, and it would have fit in snugly on AOR radio at the time, but who the hell would think it was Black Sabbath? It would probably sound like a wussy sellout move to anyone on a first impression. And think about how seriously, I mean, really, think about how seriously Black Sabbath fans take this band. This would have been the last thing that anyone was hoping for from any entity with that name at this point in time. Though I see it as a foray into experimenting with the mainstream, like, would it really be so bad to have a hit? That kind of thing. We've seen that Tony can match and best nearly any type of music he tries his hand at, so with older and wiser ears, I can just hear this as just the next steps in trying something new. Lyrically, though, it is a bit of a head-scratcher. It just seems to posit opposites together, angels and devils, dark and light, but those lyrics, living on the streets, I'm no stranger to love, what could it mean? I like to think that it's a person in a bad situation that's had to resort to turning tricks, but they look so young and innocent that no one will take them up on their offer, but truly, I have no idea. It could just be words that sound nice together, for all I know. But beyond that song really sticking out like a sore thumb in either a good or bad way, depending on who you are and what you want out of the band in this album, it's a much more solid album than anyone has likely ever led you to believe. And just in case it gets lost in the shuffle, can we take a minute to praise Glenn Hughes belting his way through this album with a soulful confidence and such a voice to be reckoned with? He is so freaking versatile. He can yell, he can scream, but he can also do the bluesy stuff that Sabbath is rooted in. But where I think he shines the most is when he stacks his own harmonies like an absolute master in the opening double bass driven ripper known as In For The Kill. There is no mercy I'm pleading It's for the kill The war to be shown It's for the thrill The battle alone That's by the Another thing that I really like about Glenn's delivery is the way that he kicks off the verses with what sounds like a standalone exclamation, but it's actually an early intro into the verse proper, which is harder to do than it sounds, especially when your brain is wired to play a stringed instrument and sing at the same time like Glenn. But he took to being a mere vocalist on the record so much better than anyone gives him proper credit for. Simply put, he sings his ass off here and all over the record. And Dave Spitz, have you been catching his little bass runs on this thing? 
Okay, okay, I know it's not technically Geezer Butler, but doesn't it fucking rule anyways? And I do see a couple of weird mixing decisions here and there, especially the very of its time gating on the snare drum. But I've also got a theory here. I think that somewhere deep down, Tony's trajectory was to make Born Again a second time, but this time make it solid enough to show what he'd actually been after. Because you've got a much more soulful vocalist here than the first two ever were, and he doesn't shriek nearly as much as the third guy, which puts the spotlight on just how bluesy these heavy players were getting at the time, rather than distracting you from it. And when I say bluesy, I mean it. That was one of my weird teenage hangups with the record. The deeper that you went into the trackless, the bluesier it got. For example, I got bored with Heart Like a Wheel after about 30 seconds and I just sort of tuned out, but that was a dumb move on my part because this thing's a vehicle for some of Tony's most blistering guitar work ever captured up until this point. the seventh star painted into any weird little category you want to, but you can't say that this is not full of genuine passion. And it turns out that again, with wiser ears and a slightly better understanding of what was going on with this thing, now I'm able to see why this was actually the completely logical musical progression from Born Again. And also, hear me now, believe me later, though Born Again has three of the original four members, the Seventh Star album technically only retains Tony, and I think it's actually the better and more consistent record if I absolutely have to compare them. thoughts from Razor Fist on the Seventh Star album. That that edge is just what comes to the fore on Seventh Star. And that's always been the Sabbath sound. It's one of the reasons, like, even if it had been, even if we take out all the controversy of sort of the parentage of the record, if we, even if we remove all that, it really would be immaterial, ultimately, because the Sabbath sound is rooted in the blues, always has been, is rooted to a large degree in R&B. And even with the side of funk, and Seven Star just takes those influences, puts them right in your face, and it still has a lot of that doomier. I mean, Seventh Star, the title track, is one of the doomier Sabbath tracks that has ever been written, right? So it's still got that, it's still got that sound. It's still there. the title track that Razorfist was just talking about, the song Seventh Star itself. And inside of it, there is some genuinely dramatic musical tension courtesy of Jeff's keyboard work right in the dead center. And lyrically, 
it's a beast, seeming to refer to the seven spirits of God from the book of Revelations, though I could be mistaken. However, if I'm right, the seventh star in this case could be compassion, and that wouldn't really jive with the rest of the words in context, in which case it could be the Seven Sisters constellation, or maybe I'm making it too complicated, and it's really just riffing on the classical antiquity of the Greek understanding of visible planets. I don't know. I do know one thing that excites me greatly about the lyrics, and that's that... Man, it is so refreshing to hear lyrics I can think about again from Sabbath after Ian Gillen got so on the nose. And that brings me to another strength of Seventh Star. Again, Glenn isn't yelling just to be a frontman. He's opening his mouth when the song needs it. And this is a return to every member present serving the song in question to the best of their abilities without ego. I mean, yeah, Tony's guitar is the loudest thing in the mix, but that's just to be expected. This five-piece plays through like a band again. And man, I was just an idiot as a teenager. In truth, as much as I've finally come around to the album, I still do hear some slightly more predictable and generic tones creeping in than ever before, and that does make me a bit nervous as to where we're going, but the closing track, In Memory, follow me here. If this album was genuinely something to fulfill Black Sabbath's contract, even though they likely would have at least had one more to go, this song would have been about as close to a perfect career-ending track as you could have hoped for at the time. It's brooding as hell, and with lines like, there's a silence where you used to be, I'm not totally convinced that at some point, Tony wasn't considering calling it a day. I mean, the guy is full of these ideas and this restless creative drive, but the industry won't let him communicate music the way he wants to. Even if that seems to change quite a bit, no one can keep up with it. But if you had to go into a job that you didn't want to do, you'd weigh the pros and cons of quitting at some point, especially when it's just you and the keyboardist left, right? I'm just saying that if my guess is right, the repeated refrain of it's still haunting me would be a pretty nice send-off, considering that the first song on the first record was about being haunted by a dark, demon-like presence. I'm merely throwing it out there. just has a voice like a fucking sledgehammer, doesn't he? I've seen this album referred to as hair metal, but that's probably due to No Stranger to Love and its accompanying video. I've seen it referred to as power metal, likely due to the crunch of Danger Zone and Turn to Stone. I've seen it referred to as blues rock, which was my personal impression of the first half long before I just went, you know, I don't totally understand genres, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Any number of nomenclatures, but to me, it's a hard rock album from 1986 that does a little bit of everything that Black Sabbath has done up until this point, but also takes some chances by flirting with, of all things, normalcy. So I can't say it's my favorite album. I can't say it's a masterpiece because of just how muddled the even trying to understand it is. But I can say without reservation that we will likely never truly understand the whole seventh star deal. And if you're listening to Black Sabbath chronologically, it makes way more sense than anyone ever led you to believe. When it cooks, it really cooks. When it confuses you, you will never solve that riddle. It's an album you can think about endlessly, and in my book, that makes it pretty damn successful, no matter what the name on the spine is. And honestly, this is where 
Act 2 for Black Sabbath ends in my eyes. When you're down to one original member, there's nothing left to do in your third act except rebuild. Yes, that is a live recording from the Seventh Star Tour, and no, your ears are not playing tricks on you. That is absolutely a different vocalist. We're going to get more into that when we begin next week, Act 3 of Black Sabbath. I hope you're having a really good time with the series so far, and I'd like to say thank you so much to everybody who's jumped on board this season. I really appreciate you. We record these episodes really far in advance because, hey, you never know what's going to happen, right? But if you're having a good time this season, please rate and review us wherever you happen to find this episode, and please tell a friend, especially if you're having a good time. If you're not having a good time, it's very easy to just press stop and forget I exist, you know? I want to say thank you to my two guests today, Jim Myers from Milk Carton Superstars and Razor Fist, also known as the Rageaholic, cannot recommend his Black Sabbath documentary, Black Sabbath Metal Mythos, enough. And we're actually going to hear some more from him in this season. Oh no, we're not done. This story is going to get way, way, way more fucked up. I'm just telling you right now, it's not even close to a resolution. That's what a third act is for, is it not? And in case you're wondering how my math works out here where I'm going, yeah, somehow act three begins with the next album, Eternal Idol but I haven't exactly talked about the fallout from 7th Star yet. Tune in next week. I'll show my hand. I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Thank you so much for taking this journey with us. Discography is a production that is made in Orlando, Florida by yours truly. My name's Mark with a C. I produce, mix, engineer, capture all the recordings. Could not do it without our boss, Cat Blackard. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Until next time, my friends. Take care. Our background music is provided by Chris Abriski. Find out more about him at chrisabriski.com.